This week on the It's a Monkey podcast. The secret, as we found through the research and through the book, is that you really have to have these seven DNA components and you have to connect them together. When you do that, you start becoming a digital organization. You start transforming the DNA of your organization. So you're not thinking about how am I going to turn paper records into digital records. You're talking about how can I get all of our records to the places they need to go and have our users use them and share them with doctors in a way that's safe and secure. It's an entirely different mindset than just saying, I want to turn paper into digital. Good morning, good evening, hello wherever you are in the world. My name is Kevin Garber. I am coming to you from the beautiful Sydney, Australia, Saturday the 21st of April 2018. You're listening to the To Monkey podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's episode 118. We have done 117 episodes, which, um, yeah, is uh, a lot of talking. I hope you've enjoyed some of them. I hope you're going to enjoy today's podcast. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Manage Flitter. On this podcast, we talk about everything related to technology, and we try to find some thought leaders in the technology and the business and the startup world to uh, just pull apart some of the interesting concepts and ideas. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Kate Frappel, who's a, a native from Sydney, Sydney born and bred, but is actually with us from Whistler, Canada. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. No worries. Good to be back. As usual, we've got a busy show coming up, but later on in the show, uh, We'll play an interview that I did with Chris Aaron, and Chris is the partner of Inc. Digital and the co-author of The Digital Helix, and we had a wonderful meandering chat about digital transformation and uh, companies keeping up with the industry and, and all sorts of uh, bits and pieces, and, and Chris has written um, that book, Digital Helix, which is, is a pretty useful book if you're looking at uh, ways to, to stay relevant, which as um, I know as a CEO is definitely incredibly difficult because whilst you're building stuff, the industry is changing, the world is changing as you're building stuff, you know, and uh, you wake up one day and the industry has moved. So it's, uh, you, you got to keep building while things are changing. So uh, a lot of uh, bits and pieces around that topic that I chatted to Chris about. But as usual, we kick off the show with some tech news and there's always such fascinating tech news. NASA's got a new spacecraft that's... Uh, specially designed, purpose-built to go and explore for new planets. Yeah, yeah. So this is a new Expo Planet Hunter, which is a satellite which is going to stare out into the cosmos and search for never-before-seen worlds, which is kind of exciting. They recently had a satellite called Kepler, and that went up in 2009, but it's about to run out of fuel in the next couple of months. So they've got this new, new spacecraft that they've named TESS, so capital T-E-S-S, mm-hmm. and it's bigger and better and it can see a lot more uh, than Kepler can, and it's specifically looking for planets that that are habitable, basically, mm-hmm. that can sustain liquids and that are very similar to Earth. But it's looking in places that they uh, astronauts and scientists haven't been able to see before. And just like the way it's programmed too is it's sort of locating red dwarfs and then Mm -hmm. looking around them for about a month each. So apparently lots of planets are sort of not far from red dwarfs. Mm -hmm. Um, Red dwarfs being a certain type of star, right? Star, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so this this TESS spacecraft will be able to basically travel to these red dwarfs 
and spend approximately a month at each one looking to see what's around it. And then at the end of the, I'm not too sure how long it's going for, but at the end of the day, it's going to collect like a, basically just make a catalog of, of places and then put them in priority of where to follow up and where to do more research. So it's, so it will focus on part of the sky and analyze part of the sky based on a red dwarf existing there and analyze that, that part of the sky. Yeah, and look for planets that are close to it. That's really interesting. I mean, it's, uh, what's interesting is NASA's still got such a big budget, you know, and it still has support. I think it's got about a $40 billion a year budget. And it's a lot of money. And it's, um, it's interesting that the American government is still pumping quite a bit of money into these very, pardon the, the pun, moonshot projects of these very, you know, where, where nothing may come from it, but they're incredibly expensive projects. Yeah, definitely. They actually had um, the TED Talks live in Vancouver last week, mm-hmm. and they were live streaming them at all the different libraries around the country. Mm-hmm. And so I went and attended some different sessions in the Whistle Library, and they actually had Elon Musk's right-hand woman there mm-hmm. doing like a uh, like oh, a panel cool. discussion. It was super interesting just to hear what she had to say about just the projects they're working on. And yeah, and like she, she was saying like in the next 10 years, they reckon that these they're going to have these rockets, which they've already got, but they just need to do more testing and stuff that can, for the price of somewhere between an economy uh, and a business ticket on a commercial flight, for a price somewhere in between there, you can jump in a rocket and fly anywhere in the world within about half an hour. And she reckons that's within the next decade we're going to be able to do that. You know, the, the future is so infamously difficult to predict it's, there are so many factors that are interlinked and uh, there's a lot of challenges to, to life on Earth or, or human life on Earth as it is. So who knows? I mean, it sounds, it sounds great. This is when they go up and down instead of going across the Earth, right? Yeah. 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 So basically just replacing a plane but using a rocket and landing it on a like a, like a platoon in the ocean. Yeah. So the longest part will actually be getting on a boat out to the platoon. Yeah. The shortest part will be the rocket. Interesting. Look, the future, the future is, is quite a, a daunting place, so uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. I can say that, you know, space is, if you're listening to the show and you've never looked through a telescope, Kate, have you ever looked through a telescope? Yeah. Now, when I grew up in Johannesburg and in days before the internet, I've, I managed, uh, I think my parents helped me buy a telescope and uh, some Friday nights after family dinner, I would go out into the backyard and, and look through this telescope. And the first time that I saw Jupiter through my telescope and I actually saw the bands of clouds on Jupiter with my naked eye, it was such an incredibly, incredibly powerful experience. It's, um, it's quite remarkable to look out into the universe with a telescope and you actually don't need anything that fancy to to enjoy the, the the bands on Jupiter or the rings of Saturn or mm. um, seeing the nebula, the gas nebula. It's really a remarkable experience. And um, there's a lot of amateur astronomers. I, I even visited one in the Blue Mountains just out of Sydney many years ago that had spent all his life savings on building this, this, this crazy observatory. And we looked at all sorts of stuff. So it's really something that's quite wonderful if you ever have the opportunity to look through a telescope with your naked eye. You can even use binoculars and things like that, but, but a telescope and a tripod. And, of course, it's become a lot easier these days with GPS and motors. And in those days, uh, I had to manually find the, the planet, which itself was incredibly difficult 
to get it just in the right spot so that the telescope would capture it. Yeah, it sounds interesting. The only time I can remember is at the Sydney Observatorium. Mm-hmm. Observatory. I don't really know what the official title is, mm-hmm. but you can do a tour there and they've got these massive telescopes and they can open up the roof and yeah, cool. super interesting. There's also the Griffith Observatory in LA, which is it was quite interesting to go there too. They got lots of big maps and you're able to use telescopes as well. A wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing for us to enjoy. So let's see if NASA discovers new new people. Boy, will that be exciting politically if we have to not only start negotiating internally on Earth, but we have to start negotiating interplanetary, right? Mm. This would be <laughs> interesting. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, Elon Musk's right-hand woman, uh-huh. she even in her talk was saying how she thinks she's even more adventurous than, than Elon because she wants to meet people from other galaxies. Okay. Well, there she can represent us, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she can. We've got, we've got our representation. Oh, yeah, look, who knows? I mean, who knows? Wow, that would be interesting. The thing is, if even if they're 100 years more advanced than us or 100 years less advanced than us, which is a tiny pinprick of time in the scale of universal time, there's a high likelihood they'll be thousands of years advanced than us or thousands of years less advanced than us. It will cause, it will be, you know, really difficult to actually, you know, engage. It's, it will probably be an incredibly challenging experience. The chances that they have, have mimicked and that we have the same point of evolution is, is highly, highly unlikely. And there may be other life forms that aren't humanoid in, in, or even animal. They might just be, you know, bacteria or things like that you know mm. yeah definitely it's it's scary to think what might be there but also super fascinating who knows maybe in two years we'll be having interviewing someone on this podcast from another planet right yeah anything maybe can, assuming uh, they're not gonna attack yes yeah. anything can happen okay keep an eye on that nasa's new spacecraft scouring the galaxy for undiscovered planets exciting uh moving on back to the back to earth Google doing its bits for preserving endangered historical sites in virtual reality. This is pretty cool because, unfortunately, with the geopolitics of the world, humans have managed to destroy some very beautiful and very significant historical sites. So it's interesting Google has has identified this and wants to preserve them for future generations in virtual reality. Yeah, definitely. Actually, they they partnered with a a 3D laser scanning company. It's a nonprofit called SciArc. And the CEO of that company actually was inspired when the Taliban destroyed like 1,500-year-old Buddhist statues Mm -hmm. uh, in Afghanistan in 2001. So it's actually interesting that that was the exact inspiration that's driven people to sort of start this project where they preserve some of these historic sites visually and through documenting using drones and uh, like high-definition cameras to create replicas of some of these sites. And then you can down the track, put them in museums and stuff, and people can experience them in virtual reality, either online themselves or they can go into museums and stuff as well. So this whole project is called the Open Heritage Project. Okay, interesting. And I think um, what's happening with virtual reality in general, it's almost like cryptocurrency came and just stole the thunder of AR and VR. And, and <laughs> AI is still, still getting a lot of uh, sort of uh, airtime. AI and machine learning, but but VR and AR seems to have gone a little bit quiet, okay? I think it's gone quiet in the news, but mm-hmm. it's 
it's still being used in lots of places. Like there are a lot of companies that are using it for training Mm -hmm. and, you know, and sort of more, I guess, like this Google project, uh, like culturally. So they're doing things to, you know, in this case they're preserving, but Google have also, you know, they've put some of the big museums in virtual reality. So if you can't, if you can't go to New York, you could uh, visit that museum online and do like a virtual walking tour. Uh, so they're, they're sort of making it's in some ways novel, but it's also kind of a cultural thing. And I think it's quite big in gaming as well. Mm, very um, so it's not it's not like a big news story, if that makes sense. But people are still using it to to teach and learn and preserve things. Yeah, I think I think the everyday person has still not been quite impacted significantly by AR and VR, and and maybe one day they will, particularly AR. But a lot of these technologies continually, you know, have incremental change until the day they just appear and people think there's been revolutionary change, but it's actually been incremental change up until a Mm. point. So, um, yeah. I know AR is, is definitely making its dent. There's even, you know, some of the messenger bots and stuff now they can... An example would be when I was at Social Media Marketing World, I watched Kathy Hackle and she gave a few examples. And there's a makeup company, I can't actually recall the brand name, mm-hmm. but you basically go onto their Facebook Messenger bot and it gives you like all these different shades of lipstick and makeup and stuff. And you take a picture of yourself and you can try on the color. Yeah. So that basically puts all the different colors of the lipsticks on your face, on your like on your actual phone screen through the bot and then you can order and buy and all that stuff so you can see what it looks on you rather than having to you know use testers and stuff in the store that would be really cool particularly if the representation is very accurate it needs to be it's accurate. not bad it's yes it's very accurate yeah. i mean i didn't buy the lipstick to compare it but in terms of like making my lips look legit like i've got mm-hmm. like i've got lipstick on it it definitely looks like i had ridiculous colored lips didn't look fake or like uh didn't look like a cheesy filter it was legit okay interesting i think i think the glasses companies have been trying for ages to do that with you know glasses frames online you know upload your your face and put because glasses shopping is one of these things that's actually quite annoying and quite difficult to get right Mm. so that they've had for quite a while but i haven't tried any of the new ones so yeah look this tech i'm sure is improving over time but it's a it's it's nice of good i mean google google's an interesting company they spend a lot of money on these projects that aren't directly influence shareholder value um no that's true i even saw a headline today i think it was you know that product they released i think it was last year we spoke about on the podcast allo the google app the whatsapp competitor I think so. I can't remember what the different, like the differentiation was, but there was something cool about Allo, mm-hmm. and they've actually decided to slow down and pause funding on that for now. So, obviously, hasn't taken off. It's not really worth their time, but it's cool that they dabble in all these things. Look, Google makes so much money, so much cash. The challenge that Google faces is that ninety-seven percent of that cash is still from advertising. And they're yeah. still fiddling around to try and um, diversify the, the sources of their money. So if you notice that the CEO of Google, Sundar, these days he refers to Google as, he doesn't refer to Google as a search company. He refers to them as, a, as an AI machine learning company. Oh, really? Yeah, which is, which is quite interesting. So 
and and the way they've you know process searches has changed so much over the last few years and they're getting you know really good at that what's interesting is google's managed to stay out of these discussions that facebook's being dragged into about privacy which i find quite interesting mm. right and they're probably enjoying that that you know google have just as much if not more data on people than if you've got an android phone you can actually just look at the history and i think we've chatted about this before you know there's a map going back to since you owned your android phone of where you've been you know literally it's it's creepy i mean that's crazy data for them right Mm. you multiply this by the the hundreds of millions of android users that's crazy data now will they use that data for evil Probably not, and I, I, I'm fine with them actually having that data. But in terms of discussing the impact and, and uh, you know, policy around that is not happening. It's just all being the spotlights, boom, on Facebook. So it's quite interesting yeah. that Google's managed to just, um, you know, not be sort of, uh, uh, sort of dragged into this. So somehow, I don't know if it's because of the fake news phenomenon. I don't know if it's because fa- Mark Zuckerberg is a very outspoken type of CEO, where the CEO of Alphabet, which is the, the holding company for Google, which is the original Google guys, Larry and Sergey, are much more understated guys. They don't talk at conferences much. They don't write blog posts much. And maybe somehow it's just managed to stay a little bit more under the radar. Yeah, potentially. But also, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't the Facebook privacy issue right now actually linked to the U.S. election, which is why it's getting all the publicity and the scandal and the lawsuits. Yeah, it's a good point that um, yeah, a lot of the concern was that the fake news and some of it driven by Russia was able to influence the U.S. election, which is a big deal, which is mm. um, you know absolutely a big deal. So, yeah, I mean, they're thinking about privacy, but I think they're also thinking about the country's leadership and power, which is, well, it depends, but in a way it's, it's a big deal. Oh, of course. Potentially I mean, the, more than some of these companies knowing where you've been. You know, the fabric of democracy is so fundamental to everything that, yes, if that's, if that's in question, it's, it's a problem. I watched a lot of those Senates, that, that sort of Senate inquiry where they were grilling Mark Zuckerberg. Boy, is that interesting. I really encourage <laughs> people just to hop onto YouTube and just do some searches for some of those clips. And um, he handled himself incredibly well and did a lot of, good homework but uh, wow there's a big gap between the politicians and the way the the tech world works they've, they've really got to we really need a new wave of politicians that are a digital first politicians that can really have a nuanced understanding of the lay of the land you know i mean facebook facebook's quite a simple technology to use to understand so if we need a government and politicians that understand technology in depth so that issues such as ai and robotics we can discuss those complex and potentially planet-destroying technologies Mm. quite seriously. You know, if we can't handle a discussion around settings on Facebook and privacy settings on Facebook, wow, we've got bigger issues on our hands, right? Yeah. It is quite concerning watching some of them. It's not even that they're not smart people. It's just they're not digitally savvy. And the type of questions they're asking, and it's obvious there's holes in their knowledge. And, yeah, as you said, like this is besides the U.S. election type thing, but the privacy thing in the grand scheme of things is actually quite a small concern when you think about what some of these other innovative companies are doing. And, you know, if some of these senators and stuff don't have their, don't have a grasp of 
of Facebook privacy, then how are they going to be able to understand, let's say, some of these these space inventions? You know what I mean? That's it's a big gap. It's a big gap, and um, I mean, you know, one of the senators didn't seem to understand the difference between email and WhatsApp. You know, yes. and and for us, it's it seems quite remarkable. But I guess if you you're not technologically savvy, well, I suppose it could be confusing. What's the difference between email and WhatsApp? Yeah, but how are they? They're the ones making decisions and making. It's insane. Yeah, it's a it's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. You know, when you look at things like AI, which Elon Musk himself has been talking about for ages, the problems with AI and AI can destroy the world very quickly, mm. very easily. We're not we're not chatting about it. So, yes, if you're American and you've got a vote, please go vote in the next election. Um, in <laughs> Australia, we're forced to vote which I actually think is a good thing, which, but Americans don't like that concept. They don't like to be forced to do anything. But please, if you're American and you have a vote, please go vote in the next election so we can, uh, you know, America does determine a lot in our world and, and we're grateful for a lot that it's given, but we, we need the best quality of leadership that we can get. On that very uh, <laughs> note, we're going to take a break and uh, we're going to Play the interview that I did with Chris Aaron, who's a partner of Inc. Digital and co-author of The Digital Helix. We're going to play um, that after the break. By the way, you can always email us at podcasteditormonkey.com. Tell us uh, whether you like the show, don't like the show, feedback. And we'll even give you a shout-out if you own a small business. You don't have to – if you own a startup, you don't have to pay us anything. Yeah, we like to hear from you. So stick around, and we'll come back with the interview after this break. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the Business Operations Manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Twitter can be a powerful social selling platform? But the first step to effective social selling on Twitter is to grow your Twitter account with high quality niche followers. For example, let's say you are an online bicycle retailer. Manage Flitter could help you grow your Twitter account by helping you find and follow people who have the word cyclist in their bio. The more targeted your search is, the higher likelihood these Twitter accounts will follow you back. We have millions of users, literally, that have used Manage Flitter's search, sort and filtering tools to grow their account with the right followers. This has provided them with a solid base to kickstart their social selling. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. You're back with It's a Monkey podcast and my name is Kevin Garber. Thanks so much for joining us on this show. On the show, we chat about everything related to technology, startups, trying to make sense of this crazy technology world that we live in. Now, over the Easter break, I actually spent a little bit of time in a very, very remote location in Australia, about 10 hours from Sydney, about six or five hours from Melbourne. And firstly, I managed to book the accommodation via Facebook through the campsite. And secondly, while I was sitting at the accommodation, I had internet speeds of 40 megabits down and 15 megabits up. And it really sort of dawned on me how that whole experience, even though it was literally in the middle of Australia, about two hours away from the closest hospital, that digital has penetrated the, the farthest corners of our country and the world. So I'm happy to say that I've uh, managed to bring someone on the show whose specialization is uh, actually transforming organizations' DNA. 
and to tackle this digital environment and move to the, the becoming sort of a company that's very uh, modern or, or uh, transforming into the, the new environment where digital is first. And I'm happy to invite uh, or to have on the show Chris Ahrens, who's the co-author of The Digital Helix. Um, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the It's a Monkey podcast. Oh, very delighted to be here. From Austin, Texas, right through to Sydney, Australia. Chris, you've been working with companies for a little while, and where are we in terms of transforming the DNA of most companies? I mean, we've, you know, the commercial internet's been around probably since about 95. It's been quite long-standing. Are there still companies that are struggling to make sense of this new environment? Unfortunately, yes. Our research says that about one in six organizations are actually thriving or seeing returns greater than their, than their investments on digital transformation, the other five and six are either in kind of limbo on the, you know, kind of close side or actually really struggling to get to this digitally transformed state. And one of the things I might say just for your listeners is that when we talk about digital transformation, we're talking about using digital technologies, using a digital mindset, enveloping the organization at its core level or DNA level, as we like to say, and using these digital components and abilities to really connect better with customers and have an almost symbiotic or partner relationship with them. And so whether you're a large company or small company, that's what we're trying to get to. Because when you do that, you're able to stay ahead of the curve, give customers what they want, serve them better, and really take advantage of all of this great insight and information that's out there in the digital world for virtually any organization and for us as consumers. What comes to mind is Mark Andreessen's paper, seminal paper of software is eating the world. That <laughs> industry by industry, vertical by vertical, every vertical is essentially becoming a software business um, in a way. You have, you have Uber for transport, it's it's, it's a software business. You have Airbnb for accommodation. It's a software business. Um, travel, in, in many aspects, is a software business. And uh, you know, pa- newspapers have become digital software businesses. So, so vertical by vertical, everything's turning into software. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of interesting things that are kind of in that statement. So yes, everything is turning into software. Yes, everything is software, but now the smallest of the small to the largest of the large can add this really powerful software on a per seat, per user basis and have the capabilities that were once reserved for the Fortune 1000 or maybe even the Fortune 500 of the world. So software has kind of leveled the playing field for all of us, but in the fact that software is here and available and powerful and gives really wonderful abilities and insights for organizations to use, uh, we just did some research last month in March that showed that um, 40% of organizations, actually 42% of organizations, believe that they can buy technology and become digitally transformed. And if that were true, then the largest corporations would all be digitally transformed and be setting new bars and new heights for us to chase after as smaller companies. But that's not happening because it takes a digital mindset. It takes a real understanding of what the signal-to-noise ratio is and what are the insights that can really drive a business. And it takes what we call the seven DNA components that have to work in concert together. Otherwise, you have all of this disparate siloed technology that's wonderful, but it never really 
connects to itself and connects within the organization to help a company not only learn more about its customers, learn more about what markets they're serving, and really deliver in a way that keeps them ahead of what the customer wants and ahead of their competitors simultaneously. Well, here's a thought for you, Chris. I was chatting to my general practitioner here in Sydney a few weeks ago, and uh, we were talking. I was saying, you know, it's crazy that the medical industry is still still so dependent on paper. It would be great if I could go to a portal and just get historically all my results for everything in one place. She said the Australian government has spent one billion—that's with the B—Australian dollars trying to come up with some sort of e-health initiative that does that to digitally transform that industry and so far what we have to show for it is the grand total of nothing (laughs) (laughs) well i I, i'd like to say that i'm absolutely shocked and surprised but i'm not i mean we had something similar in this country uh with obamacare and um the affordable care act where we tried to make it easy for people to buy on a website their health care and that's why the one in six is so interesting and the six it's 16 percent is the actual stat if you break it down is that it is a very very complex problem it's not easy but it's solvable if you have the right framework if you have the right leadership and if you have this idea that we are going to connect everything and work together to really thrive digitally and what usually winds up happening which i'm sure helped happened in the australian medical records case is that the act of buying technology itself and digitizing it doesn't actually transport that data anywhere it doesn't connect to all the other systems and make it uber user friendly as it were and so what you wind up having are all of these different systems that don't talk to each other or insights that go to one place that would be well served to go to 32 And it just winds up being a big problem. And so the secret, as we found through the research and through the book, is that you really have to have these seven DNA components and you have to connect them together. When you do that, you start becoming a digital organization. You start transforming the DNA of your organization. So you're not thinking about how am I going to turn paper records into digital records. You're talking about how can I get all of our records to the places they need to go and have our users use them and share them with doctors in a way that's safe and secure. It's an entirely different mindset than just saying I want to turn paper into digital. I'm talking with Chris Ahrens, who's the co-author of the Digital Helix, as well as the partner at Inc. Digital, and we talking about everything related to the book that he co-authored, The Digital Helix, Transforming Your Organization's DNA to Thrive in the Digital Age. Chris, I think a lot, when you were talking previously, I was thinking a lot about banks um, yeah. and in Australia, because they, they obviously have a, a large legacy challenge, where, um, and they also got large um, fiduciary sort of obligations and they are desperately trying to to innovate. Interestingly, Westpac Bank, which is one of the top four banks in Australia, is a shareholder in one of the big cryptocurrency trading platforms in the States, Coinbase, which is quite interesting. So uh, they've actually invested uh, as a shareholder, I think about 60 million US dollars into that platform. So they're definitely aware that they need to reinvent themselves. And Ian Nuriev, who's the CEO of Commonwealth Bank, I think last year basically said if they don't reinvent themselves pretty quickly, they are not going to exist. They have no choice. And I would imagine they, uh, they're tackling some of these issues that you're talking about or attempting to almost as a matter of survival. Oh, they have to. You know, you brought up Uber and Airbnb. Um, my children are 14 and 16 years old, and they don't know what a taxi cab is, really. I mean, they've seen them on the streets, but to them, if you need transportation, it's Uber or Lyft here in the United States. 
and they don't even think about calling a phone number and waiting for some guy or gal in a yellow cab to show up. It's you get it on an app and you see what's happening. And so every industry is going through this really painful process of trying to digitally transform because if they don't, there is a smaller, agile company that is digital by design, digital native, because all they're they're starting up with just all digital technology because now any entrepreneur can scale and use fractional CEOs. They can use per seat licenses. They can buy all this stuff on a uh, pay-as-you-go basis and become a digital company from their inception and transform what's happening. And the banking world is a fascinating example because here in the United States, we have banks that are trying to compete by adding coffee shops in their branches, which is crazy when other banks are saying, well, what if we just made everything digital and got rid of the branches altogether? And then you just use anybody's ATM if you need cash. So it's really transforming what people are actually able to do and what they can do and where they want to take their business to stay ahead of the competition and give us, the customers, all what we want at the same time. It's 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 a wonderful time to be alive. It really is. Chris, wasn't uh, and Austin, Texas, one of the cities where Uber was banned at one stage? Yeah. Yeah. What happened yeah, with that? It, crazy. So the uh, mayor and the city council wanted Uber to uh, follow the same licensing guidelines, fingerprinting, and background checks for their drivers at the city taxi cab drivers uh, have to face. And it became a standoff, and Uber decided that they were going to play dirty, and they were going to take their toys and go home, as the saying goes, because they didn't want to have to do that. They wanted to make a shiny example of what, uh, how they were going to just stand, and if you are going to push these regulations, which were not onerous at all and wouldn't cost them anything, but they didn't want Austin to be a test case so that, you know, 200 other cities across the United States and the world would force them into fingerprinting and background checks. So they were they decided to leave rather than submit to this regulation. And then our governor stepped in and p- passed a law that said that there it can be no local ordinances that would supersede the state ordinance, which does not require them to do it. So it's a crazy world, I know. It's, uh, it's interesting, the bottom-up pressure that's coming from these companies to to compromise on on laws and in, in, in could be argued a pr- pragmatic sense, but we won't go down that that whole sort of Uber. Well, idiot. but but it's a good. I, it's I'm glad you brought that up because uh-huh. almost within days of Uber and Lyft saying, well, we're not going to submit to these absolutely non draconian um, rules that were designed to protect us all. Austin had I think six or eight startups that did exactly the same thing using probably the same drivers uh, for the most part. And some had a social cause to them. Some had, you know, some other beneficial aspects that they thought they could improve on the Uber and Lyft model. And that again goes to how a digital startup can literally rise from nothing within days or weeks and have an app up and be functioning. And for uh, however long Uber and Lyft were not in town until the governor stepped in, we had six or eight very good services that were performing Uber and Lyft functionality without really anybody missing a beat. And through social media, everybody knew about it. Oh, here's the one I like. Here's the one you like. These guys have been great. Here's the app. And it just happened organically. And that's what digital is all about. The switching cost for something like that is, is quite low from a consumer's perspective. And that's very... Uh, very difficult as a company. And Uber, from a business perspective, has been criticized in that their business model is not necessarily sustainable because how big of a moat do they actually have um, against competitors? 
Well, and and that's where digital comes in. You know, we've talked like what is digital, but what is the real benefit of digital? The real benefit of digital is being able to stay one step ahead always. No longer are we doing these long, you know, year-long, two-year-long, decade-long strategy projects because the world's changing and moving too fast. So what Uber and you, uh, Amazon's another perfect example of this is that they always want to be one step ahead. So now we have Uber Eats to deliver you food. We have Uber delivers for package delivery and service delivery in town within minutes or within hours. And Amazon, you know, who would have thought a few years ago that Amazon would have been one one of the world's largest hosting companies? But when you understand and look at the right insights and data and you see that people really need something like this, the existing companies out there are not servicing the market terribly well, and you have this gorgeous infrastructure and an ability to customize and create a self-service portal that nobody's done, it becomes the perfect use of Amazon's technology and its next move. And that's why we see it growing so well and being so wonderful for the company, just like Whole Foods and other moves they've made. It's because they understand what data matters, what insights matter, and how they can use their core to transform markets or enter markets that nobody thought they would ever exist in. Do you think Uber's ever going to make a profit? Well, that's interesting. In my opinion, I think we're moving to driverless cars. Mm -hmm. And when driverless cars come out, the value add that Uber has is that they may have been first and they have the app. But, you know, as Amazon has shown with servers, if you can buy it easier and cheaper and you have scale and you have this technology, you know, I think that the world is going to continue to see upstarts unseed traditional companies. And now we're starting to see upstarts become traditional and be upseeded or unseated by new startups. And that's going to keep happening in the next couple of decades, which again makes it very exciting for consumers because we're always getting newer, better options. And when a company like Facebook with all of their privacy data came out over the last few weeks, uh, missteps, I'm very hopeful that somebody's going to step up and say, we can build a better mousetrap and build it the way customers want it for your benefit, not just for, you know, businesses and partners. So I think that the world is going in the right direction, but it's it's going to be a real bumpy, rocky ride for some people. Yeah, the Uber, the Uber store is definitely interesting, and it, and it does show how interesting it is for consumers, but it's also very interesting for entrepreneurs because uh, it's, it's, it's really an exciting time to find these little gaps, to find these little niches, to take something and do it better. And also these companies like Facebook and like Twitter and like Uber and like Slack, they become more, their products become more convoluted over time, even like Instagram. Yeah. And there's, there's a gap to come back in with a simple product yet again. And uh, because all these products started out as actually very simple products that have become complicated. And here in the United States, I just saw a statistic when I was reading yesterday, the day before, that the most successful entrepreneurs or the largest group of successful entrepreneurs worked for an average of six years inside larger organizations. So these men and women are sitting in these bigger companies for the most part. They're seeing what is right. They're seeing what is wrong. They're seeing all of the issues that they are either addressing or not addressing or poorly addressing. And they're saying, I think I could build a better mousetrap. I think I can make a better thing either that competes directly with this behemoth or eats away these very profitable little corners that they're not well-suited to serve or not agile enough to serve. And that's part of the digital world and the digital transformation we're all going through because it's happening and it's happening because people are recognizing it. And the barrier to entry, like I said, is 
you get a website, you get a domain, you lease all this technology, you rent it on a per seat basis, you get some fractional people and the gig economy, and all of a sudden you have the ability to run a hundred person, uh, the equivalent of a hundred person company out of your garage, your your spare office. It's it's wonderful. You know what was interesting as well. There's even the next phase, Chris. I was chatting with a. A 13-year-old kid on the Easter weekend, and he was amongst a group of, of adults, and we were talking about some political issue, or I can't even remember what, and I was debating some statistical fact, and I said to the person, well, look it up on Wikipedia, and the 13-year-old kid piped in, and he said, he said, no, Kevin, Wikipedia is pretty useless unless you go to the source documents and you investigate exactly what the source documents were. And I thought to myself, isn't that fantastic that the 13-year-old kid has already got the broader context of what, what Wikipedia is and what it isn't? Yeah. And like you had mentioned, you know, going out into remote places, all of this stuff is there for the taking, whether it's for personal use or business use. One of the uh, things that we talk about in the book is this thing called Africa Girls, which use cheap cell phone cameras to diagnose sickle cell in Africa, which is a huge problem. But they were able to use these very cheap, plentiful cell phone cameras that most of us would never even think of using today, but they were able to take pictures and diagnose sickle cell in these remote villages and then transmit that information through the internet and get diagnosis and get people treated for sickle cell and greatly reduce the mortality rate and the incidence rates of sickle cell in Africa. That's the kind of wonderful thing that I think we're all building to. Yeah, we're going to get all the fun social stuff and we're going to get all the weird product stuff and we're going to get driverless cars, but we're also going to get some cool, amazing things that I think are going to change some lives and extend lives. And that's really the spirit of technology. You know, we speak a lot on the podcast when some of these are fantastic medical advances that really transform people's quality of lives. And, um, and that's very much the spirit of technology is improving lives. But Chris, tell us a little bit more about some, some concrete examples of companies that, that were facing challenges in terms of struggling to transform into the, the, the new digital landscape and what steps they took to actually get to a, a much better and much more relevant place. Well, I want to go through the the seven components of the digital helix because that's what we found. If you get these seven right and working in concert, you get it. And I'll try to give some examples along the way. The first one is executives as digital helix explorers or executives as explorers. And really what that means is that the chief executive can't just mandate change, can't say, we want you to be digital. He or she has to get their hands dirty, they have to experiment, and they have to kind of push the organization to not only think digitally, but compensate their people for doing digital-type things, which might mean failure and learning from their failure and accepting that failure is a part of growing and transforming. And we've seen this a number of different places where executives just mandate change and they say that we're going to become digital. And, of course, the end result is that it, it doesn't happen because the mandate from the top doesn't permeate into funding and all the other things that have to go on. The other thing, and this is going to go into Amazon, who we did some work for, is theme and stream. And that's there's these constant themes of information and streams of data that are out there for all of us to use. And Amazon is probably the best one at looking at insights and getting the signal-to-noise ratio. I've heard so many times that we want to get more data for our organization, whether it's from clients or from you know people I'm talking to. 
The world doesn't need more data. The world needs to focus on the exact insights that matter to the organization, to their customers, to transform the business or to create new possibilities for the business. So I think that's a a hugely important part of understanding that more is not always better, but you've got to get the right insights and get rid of a lot of the noise that's out there so you can focus on what's really important to the organization. The third one is customers have experiential portfolios, and, and you were talking about this at the beginning of the, the podcast here, where, you know, the way we search, the way we look for things is unique to almost all of us. Like if I'm going to buy a car or a television, I may Google something, I may go to a brand website, I may go to a vendor website, and I create my own little world of how I'm going to get this information served up to me because the internet allows that to happen. And Brands and big and small have to recognize that you really need to understand that customers are going to do this and you have to be at that moment where they want you in the way that they want you with the type of information they want. Yes, you can be on social everywhere, but that's not a realistic goal. You've got to be on social with the right type of information and the right type of setting so that they can take this and consume it in the way they want it. And then that leads to marketing communications as a flow is that marketing used to be, and I remember this when I did a, the DVD launch for Philips Electronics back in the early 90s. We used to, you know, we spent six months planning this launch and it was, you know, this huge thing. Now launches happen on a weekend, a weekday. You know, my kids talk about sneaker drops happening tomorrow. There are all of these things that happen instantaneously at trade shows or conferences or just in parking lots. So marketing and communications happens in a real-time basis. It's not this long planned out and drawn out thing. And when that happens, we get to our next one, which is sales is connected moments where customers are looking for moments. And this kind of dovetails into the insights piece. If you know what your customers are looking for and you know what they're buying and where they're going socially and getting information from both inside and outside, these moments are where you can actually do the greatest good and actually be the most benefit to your customers and therefore sell more. And the last two are really, I I would say, the more traditional of the two, but they're the probably the most missed. And that is everybody is responsible to everybody else. In the organization, if I have great data, if you have great data, if we have this wonderful Salesforce or Workday implementation, all of that has to be shared. And I shouldn't be just giving this to you. We should be co-acting and getting together in real time and figuring out how we can use this better and inviting more people into the process. And the final one I talked about a lot is that one uh, in the moment and one step ahead. Using this data to stay one step ahead of what your customers want or maybe what you think they want and always one step ahead of what the market is doing and what your competitors are doing. And when you put all of these together, you get digitally transformed. You get a digital mindset because that's really what we're going for is I want to think digital. I want to be digital. I don't want to add digital or wrap with digital. And one of the examples I like to use, which kind of sums all this up, is that I was looking for a new cell phone plan recently, as I was convinced I was being way overcharged by my carrier here in the United States. So I went on their website, I called them and told them I thought I was being overcharged, and that they asked if they had a better plan. Uh, From their website, I went to competitors' websites, I Googled other plans, I looked on social to see what people were saying about different vendors here in the United States. All of those things should have set up red flags all over my existing carrier's infrastructure that they have a customer who'd been with them for 16 years was thinking about swapping to another carrier. That's the kind of power digital should have, 
and they should have been able to retain me because I'm the kind of guy who spends a whole lot of money on cell phones. I buy the latest iPhone for myself, my employees, and my family when it comes out. And yet, when I called up to cancel, it was the biggest surprise in the world for them that I was canceling, which is absolutely ridiculous in this day and age. And that's what I think people need to understand is that when you tie this information together, not only could they have kept me, but they could have brought more people in like me and prevented another competitor who's growing at twice their rate from garnering all of these different customers in and really transforming the market. I mean, I think along with digital transformation to maintain a a sense of getting the basics right, which is me keeping customers happy, seems to get lost these days, ironically as well, maybe because it's probably the least sexy, but the most important part of a business. Oh, yeah, it is absolutely. And and if you think about it, whether you're a large company who's in manufacturing or in service, if something comes in via the website, via chat, via the phone line, and there's a problem, that kind of problem should be parsed. Is it a design problem? Is it a sales problem? Is it a use problem? How can we make the experience better for our customers? And if you're not digitally transformed where that can flow, immediately to a group of people who can start working on that problem to figure out what the best course of action and transform a negative into a positive, you're always playing catch up. You're absolutely right. If you look at um, Twitter's challenges and Facebook's challenges, I mean, the users, which, and it's a tricky thing because the users aren't their customers, the advertisers aren't, are their customers. Um, No, we're their product. We're their product, but, (laughs) but if the product goes, then you know they don't have customers. So it's still a, a, an important part of the puzzle. And and in Facebook's case, people forever have been talking about data privacy concerns. I mean, it's it's just not new since day one. There's been concerns about that, and it's not new. And how deeply were they listening? Well, no, that could be argued with Twitter. It's the trolls and the abuse since since a long time ago. It's the, the trolls and the abuse have been an issue. So if you take an opportunity to listen to your, to your stakeholders, including your customers, they're signs, right? There's, there's always signs. Well, th- they're signs, but that was a systemic failure. That wasn't just that they were not playing well with each other or with their partners. They allowed their terms of service to be too broad and not be specific enough so people could tell good from bad. Then other people found out not only because the, the big problem with Facebook is not only could they get my data because I was on there, but they could see all of my friends' data. They could see all my family's data. So they were parsing two, three, four levels deep, well beyond the terms of service, well beyond what should have been allowed. And that's when you have an organization that just doesn't have their eye on the ball. They're worried about other things like monetizing me as a customer, you as a customer or user. They're worried about getting in more revenue and more advertisers. They're not worried about preserving the experience because Facebook is a living room for most people. This is where we go to hang out with family and friends. And if you had the right structure in place, the right framework, the right leadership, this digital explorer as a leader in Zuckerberg or whomever would be the COO of the organization who would be in charge of this, this kind of stuff wouldn't be allowed because the focal point would have been on preserving the experience for the user. And this became the Wild West. If you read about it, we actually did several blog posts on our LinkedIn. It's disturbing in how little oversight and how little they knew and how much they knew and still did nothing. So it's it's damning on, on multiple levels. The interesting thing I find out about Facebook, which I've been talking to some friends trying to get business to go, is that business is tough. 
right? Even even Facebook misses stuff and gets stuff wrong, and they've got yeah. all the money in the world, and and they've made some missteps. So it's even though you know the friction has been reduced in terms of starting up a business, executing on a business is difficult, and you're going to get things wrong, and it's going to be a tough journey, worthwhile but tough journey. Chris, what do you think? Um, Apple came out and said, we believe privacy is a fundamental human right. And they sort of took a, a swipe at, at uh, these social media companies like uh, Facebook and to you know, Google using data as a product. And do you think we should be having this discussion about companies not being able to just use our data in any which way and hide behind the terms of service? Well, I, I think it's a wonderful PR move, right? You know, yeah, you know, whenever you stand up for the customer and say that privacy and data is something that's sacred to us and your value in it is sacred to us is beautiful, right? So I, I can't say anything bad about that. But the real issue is, is that somebody has to mind the store. And so having the dialogue about this is really great because for too long, you know, data has been mishandled, whether it's in data breaches, whether it's in credit card fraud and all of this other stuff, data is not mishandled. So if, if I'm your product, don't just throw me on a shelf without putting a fence around me and a door in a security system. So I think that's the one thing Facebook learned is that they really got to treat us, their product with a lot more regard and a lot more value than they've been giving us. And I think that's good for everybody. And you mentioned you know, whether it's startups or anything. And the one thing that digital allows you to do, I want to be careful here, but I, I want to get this point in, is that it allows you to experiment and fail fast. And the ability to experiment and fail fast in digital can happen so quickly and so instantaneously. And if you fail fast and learn something, even though you didn't succeed, you're going to be 10 times more rich and you're going to have a 10 times better result when you do eventually succeed. So I think it's good to try some things out and fail fast, not with data and not with being careless with it, obviously. But the one thing Facebook did is when they failed, they didn't fail fast, they failed ugly. And Zuckerberg came up with a bunch of hum-ha statements that didn't even seem like he really even cared or knew what was going on. So it's troubling, but I think there's a great lesson for entrepreneurs that if, if data is part of your business model, it should be guarded like the king's jewels. Chris, what came to mind a lot in some of our discussion are companies like um, Kodak, who was actually the inventor of the digital yeah. camera. I mean, that's just, that's just such a crazy fact that, and again, it just points to how difficult this is to get right. And Kodak so, no longer exists. And Nokia, who peaked when the iPhone was released, and they struggle to invent themselves, and they don't really exist in the form that they used to exist. Um, and they're classic examples of uh, the failure to reinvent themselves and companies with all the resources in the world at the time. So no excuse on that side of things. And I'm glad you brought that up because I, earlier in my career, did a lot of work for Kodak. Kodak is a wonderful, wonderful example of an old world company that had everything at their fingertips, but they wanted to preserve their legacy business. And so they literally died holding and grasping their legacy business with their last breath and last ounce of strength in film. And so, you know, they sold the first digital camera to Apple. They, they, they at one point in time, gloriously referred to pawning digital technology off on some Cupertino company. You know, again, you got to be one step ahead. They could have owned it. Swiss watchmaking. Swiss watches were the inventors of LCD technology for wristwatches. They gave it away to Seiko because they didn't see the value of it. So these innovations are happening all the time. 
But if you if you live in a world of yesterday and not are constantly exploring and trying to go where things are going tomorrow and trying to figure out how to be there and understand what customers want, you're always going to be a loser. And, you know, we have giant retailers in this country, in the United States, that are failing because they can't figure out how to compete with Amazon. Yet other retailers are thriving in the face of Amazon because they figured it out. And so it's it's about being one step ahead and listening to what your customers want and looking at the missteps of some of the leaders and looking at the missteps of some of the fallen to keep your business where it needs to go and use this digital information to be where you're going to be rich and in that green field where you can take advantage. Chris, um, an important part of digital transformation is uh, digital transformation of governments. Australia yeah. has had various initiatives ranging from the, the National Broadband Network to try to get connectiv- connectivity across this empty great land of ours, ranging through to some other entrepreneurship initiatives. Uh, we spoke on the podcast to Anil Dash, who's an entrepreneur and also a commentator on the tech industry, and he's got a lot of concern that in the current administration, there's very limited understanding of technology. There's Elon Musk who said that AI, should, we should be talking about this and how it's going to impact our future. What's your opinion on how can we how can we start getting momentum on the on the on the government level? Because that's the dynamics are totally different there, but in a way oh, even more important. Absolutely. Digital citizens, we're all digital citizens, right? And we rely on government for so many things. And uh, unfortunately, you know, here in the United States, we have a number of challenges with our government, as you're probably aware and have seen, and many of your readers are reading about. But for the book, we interviewed a number of really bright, really charismatic, really forward-thinking government leaders who are trying to digitally transform either their piece of it or their organization within it or a section of it. So there's no doubt in my mind, at least here in the U.S. and probably in Australia and other companies, the intent is there. The problem is, is all of the competing entities that really make it so difficult to take one step ahead without taking four steps to the right and three back at the same time. We, we talk about what it takes to get something done. And then I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, when I was in Los Angeles, they were building a new subway system for the city, which of course, mass transit, good idea. LA has clogged freeways. So what they wound up having is four separate rail systems, each incompatible with each other, that meet at one central point downtown, which is not really conducive to where people work and live in Los Angeles, if you're at all familiar with it. So I asked my friend who worked at the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, I said, how in the hell could this have been the solution you wound up with? And he said, well, one board member worked for this train company, so they got that line. Mm. Another board member worked for this train company, and they got that line. And so when you wind up compromising based on these competing interests and, you know, these ideals that people have, uh, you know, we're going through this with net neutrality here in the United States where our telecommunications entity, our, our, our governing body, said, well, it's perfectly okay to throttle the internet for smaller companies and allow larger companies to pay broadband providers to get their information and content to you faster. Well, 
No, it's not, because that ruins the whole concept of the internet. And every large digital company has come out against it. The only people who are in favor of are the large broadband companies who see it as a money-making opportunity. But even they've come back and said, well, you know, we're not going to do anything just now because it's going to wreak havoc on our user base and we're worried about what will happen. So we've got to find a way to, in government, allow these bright, well-intentioned individuals and their staffs who have the money, who have the resources to do this, to not be confounded by politicians who are literally doing things for either their own best interests or their constituents' best interests and not worried about us. And that's a huge problem here in the United States. And it sounds like you're dealing with it there and I'm sure elsewhere in the world. That's the barrier. It's not digital. It's not the brightness. It's not the, the wherewithal. These people got it and they know what to do. And in many cases, because it's a closed loop, they're they're dealing with only themselves. They can go faster than some of the commercial entities, but they don't have the ability without going through a lot of red tape, as we refer to it, and it, it, it breaks the cycle. It's awful. It's the, the ongoing challenge of big business capturing governments, and it's 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 probably a, a challenge around the world. But what Chris, what happened with I mean, Trump had one of the, the smartest people in the industry, Peter Thiel, on his side. We haven't heard, well, I haven't heard much from what's gone on with, with Peter Thiel's sort of, you know, advice. And Trump managed to get a whole heap of tech people around a table, the smartest of the smarts, I think, including Sheryl Sandberg and some Google reps, etc. But there's, um, at least here in Australia, I haven't heard anything about any initiatives from this current administration in terms of uh, um, digital initiatives or improvements of, of infrastructure or the, the industry or anything on that side of things? I, I think it was all smoke and mirrors, to be honest with you. I think there was that there was talk and people got together, but then I know a lot of people like Elon Musk have left the panel mm -hmm. because they said that there was nothing there and what we were talking about fell on deaf ears. Nobody really wanted to hear it. And so, you know, if the higher ups don't want to participate or they just want to put a window dressing up and kind of, you know, talk about this as being an initiative without any real ability to make change, you're actually going in reverse at that point because you're wasting the valuable capital that could be used from these giant tech companies and brilliant minds to transform government, transform the country. But it, it it's there's no there's no path to success there is the way one of the people on the panel who quit put it and uh, I think that's the that's the end result we're all all dealing with right now. It's a bit of a shame there's a lot of a lot of opportunity but anyway Chris it's been an absolutely fascinating chat. Chris Ahrens is the co-author of the Digital Helix. Chris is also a partner at Inc Digital. All the links will be on the show notes so you can stay in touch uh, and buy the book and uh, what, what's the best way to follow you Chris on LinkedIn or Twitter? Uh, LinkedIn is the best. It's uh, C Aaron C A A R O N S on LinkedIn, or at Inc Digital, which is I N C dot Digital, uh, new top level domain. Or you can always go to thedigitalhelix.com. We have uh, research that we just finished, as I mentioned earlier in the segment, that we're going to be posting there on, and on LinkedIn. So if you're really interested in this topic or just want to stay up to date or chat, uh, any one of those are a great place to go to. And don't be the next Kodak or always just stay one step ahead. That's very much the name of the game. And as someone who's the CEO of a bootstrap company, I can tell you staying one step ahead sounds a lot easier than it is. It is a tough thing to do. I, I think if you have the right digital mindset, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's, it's only tough when you try to make old world 
concepts work in, in digital world precepts. So I, I, I have high hopes for our new digital world. And the more people who do it, the more people who try it, the more people who get it, I think we're all going to be better for it. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, a great chat and um, we appreciate your time on the podcast. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate, the Kodak story is, is an anecdote I like to tell people and I like to remember myself that the Kodak invented digital photography and Kodak struggled to reinvent themselves. And it's, and it's a very humbling fact that as a founder and a CEO, you have to remember that uh, no business is bulletproof and you're always only a few moves away from being a redundant company with, uh, with no value proposition. Yeah, definitely. And the, the challenge is actually identifying the change, uh, the change in the market and the trends before, I guess, before another company does or other companies. Because if you're already in the in the industry, you sort of have an edge where you can just update your service or your product uh, to cater for that market, whereas other people would have to start from scratch. But like, if you don't reinvent yourself, then then you become obsolete. Yeah, it's, and and this is one of the arguments for funded businesses and technology to have a war chest so that you can reinvent yourself. But it's still even with a war chest, it's very difficult because there's a lot in a business that um, is not scalable. There's there's why there'll always be room for startups is because when you know a startup of one or two or three or even 10 people without any legacy issues, you can focus on one issue at hand. And that's about creating a product that adds value. You're not encumbered by any legacy problems, legacy legal challenges. Even we were talking about Facebook. Imagine, imagine a, a company starting up a social media platform today, right? They don't have to worry that they're under the US government's microscope. They don't have to worry about um, legacy technical issues. They can start with that proverbial clean slate. And that's why there'll always be room for startups. And I was chatting with some people last night that work in the banking industry in Sydney, and they were saying how they've thrown money at innovation and this, but there's nothing to show for it. And I said, I don't know, I can't even think of an example of, of where, you know, how many com- big companies have innovated. It's, it's, it's the small upstarts that have, have disrupted everything right from the Wright brothers, who sort of the modern era of flying, they were two guys on a cliff with a mm. homemade plane. You know, it wasn't one of these big train engineering companies or a mining company. It was two brothers on a cliff with a homemade airplane. That's So, you know, there's something magical when you can focus on a small issue undistracted. Um, these big companies have a lot of money. Even we spoke about Google. I mean, Google's tried to crack social many times. There's still not a product, right? Google no. Wave, Google Plus, right? There is still not a product. They bought Orchid. They screwed up Orchid. Uh, there is still not a Google social product. With all the money in the world, they have still not managed to crack that. 
But it's almost like the, the market's already saturated for that. Or they're not offering anything new. Well, I mean, they've been trying social, you know, even, you know, Google Wave was, I mean, I, try, I can't remember what Yo! Google Wave was. It might, it might have been not that long after the Facebook thing, but it's, it's um, innovation. You know, a lot of people have tried to crack the code of innovation. It's just, it's like writing a hit song. There's a magic. It's part of art. It's part mm. magic. And we can't define it. That's why it remains so special. You listen to some hit songs and they've got four chords. You know, they're simple. They're really, really simple. And you can have millions of people around the world can actually play that song. So technically they're quite easy. But very, very few people can actually write that song. And I think startups is a little bit of a similar analogy. That's true. And these big ben- these big businesses would actually benefit from taking Facebook's lead and just, you know, they've got the money and stuff. They should just buy them. Well, they do from a lot of the time. Interact. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Take some of their features, things like that. They do. Rather I mean, than Facebook bought, scratch. Yeah. Facebook bought, you know, WhatsApp and Instagram and, um, you know, they've been, they try to buy Snapchat. So a lot of these companies do realize that that's the, have big balance, bank balances and, and, and buy your way to it. So, um, Yahoo nearly bought Facebook. It's an interesting story that's recounted that I think the executives of Yahoo were having a meeting with Mark Zuckerberg and his team in Palo Alto. And I think they were offering him, you know, I can't remember the exact number, so about $8 billion and Mark Zuckerberg wanted $10 billion and Mark was really and still young at that stage. And some of the Yahoo execs went to the bathroom and, and the CEO said to one of the Yahoo executives, he says, look, I just can't do this. I can't pay a 23-year-old kid $10 billion. Like, it's just, I might be getting some details. You can look it up. It's on record. But um, the deal fell through ultimately. And, of course, Yahoo lost, lost a, a, a big potential company. But who knows? Yahoo may have not executed well on it, and it might not be the Facebook it is today. No, I actually can't imagine it to be honest same as i think part of the reason google must struggle with social is because google have already set themselves up as search and advertising and knowledge you know they're not a social platform yeah and so you don't you don't make that association and yahoo's kind of the same like i wouldn't associate yahoo with social and also what you know the dna of a business you know and as you've worked with with managed flutter for many years, you, you can see the DNA of a business which is very difficult to de- describe, but is very present on a day-to-day level. And mm. uh, you know, Google comes from a very heavy engineering DNA, and Facebook comes from a very social DNA, and that plays out in different ways. And every company has got its DNA. But um, anyway, this is why we do these things. They're difficult. There's a lot of art. There's a lot of judgment. Day-to-day of, of decisions, you, subjective judgments you have to make on what decisions to make. No one has it all worked out at all. And it's a tough journey. But um, it's, it's like making you always, it's like that hit song. You're always, you're always hoping that next song is not necessarily going to be a hit, but something that's going to be something that people really enjoy. I guess, mm. and adds to the world. You know, it's not as literal as wanting. And a startup is the same. We want to create something that people love using and, and helps them. And then you need profitability for sustainability. But beyond that, you really like to create something that people use and, and a team that, that enjoy what they do. And, that, and that's what this is all about. Yeah. Anyway, that's episode 118, done and dusted. My name is Kevin Garber. I'm the CEO of Manage Flutter and the co-founder. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, I've had my co-host with me, Kate Fappell, who's the design lead at Manage Flutter. 
and you can follow Kate on Instagram and uh, Twitter as well. And I think Kate, you're probably a lot more active on Instagram, right? Uh, yeah. I am on Twitter quite regularly, but usually for work. Yeah. If you want to see my a Canadian adventure, you should look at my Instagram. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I see your Instagram stories and uh, every now and then. I go through phases of trying to experiment with stories, but sometimes I just, it's interesting how a lot of people really have got in the habit of just documenting as they go through stories. It's an interesting phenomenon. But anyway, that's episode 118. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy it. Tweet us, email us, and uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks. See ya. <laughs>